Welcome back to To Think Minimum, the podcast of the Technology Policy Institute. Today is Thursday, October 14th, 2021. I'm Scott Walston, President and Senior Fellow at TPI. I'm here with my co-host, TPI Senior Fellow, Sarah O. Oh. And today we're delighted to have as our guest, Xiaoming Liu. Xiaoming Liu is a senior analyst in the Eurasia Group's geotechnology practice, where she focuses on the interactions of emerging technologies with geopolitics, market dynamics, and regulatory norms. Before joining the Eurasia Group, she was the China practice lead at consulting firm Access Partnership, where she helped top U.S. financial and cloud service providers enter China's market. Welcome, Xiaoming. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me back. I guess we're thrilled to have you, and we appreciate your taking your time out from your quarantine as you try to enter China. <laughs> Perfect timing. I'm <laughs> more than happy to uh, continue our discussion and keep my sanity in check. <laughs> Great. So let's start off with a high-level question. Is the U.S. or the West in general in a tech cold war with China? I don't think a cold war is the most accurate description. Maybe a lukewarm war, <laughs> if you will. I think there's somewhat significant supply chain implications of the U.S.-China trade conflict during the Trump administration. But still, I think if you look at a number of business communities survey, a lot of the Chinese firms as well as U.S. firms tend to stay on track with their business model. And many of them still have high dependency on each other. Dependency goes both ways. So I think to a certain extent, these two economies are still very much connected through the tech supply chain. And I think there may be conflicts around the semiconductor issue, particularly Huawei couldn't use many semiconductor equipments or manufacturing capacity that enabled by US IP anymore. But outside of that, I think many, many U.S. companies still see China as a major manufacturing base and a critical part of their supply chain. And I think the feeling is neutral on the Chinese side. So do you think that this talk of trying to rethink supply chains is mostly just talk? I think, for example, like China's reaction to this major trade pressure coming out of U.S.-China tension is in their 14th five-year plan, there's a major new theme called science and technology self-reliance. It sounds very sexy and very patriotic or nationalistic, depends on how you view it. But I think self-reliance is somewhat an exaggerated word. Maybe they can use this political push to reduce a little bit dependency on U.S. suppliers and the rest of the world. But I think complete decoupling is somewhat unrealistic. I think the same applies here. There's the U.S. supply chain effort, particularly the semiconductor industry has been pushing for this policy effort to secure a significant amount of domestic manufacturing capacity that they feel that's a fundamental critical to the strategic industry in case there's any major supply chain disruption on the Chinese side between the U.S. suppliers and potentially in collaboration with European suppliers and Japanese suppliers, they can still have a certain amount of semiconductor supply to support other industries in the technology ecosystem. But still, I think the goal right now 
is to, I think the rough number they are seeking is somewhere around like 20-30% of the global semiconductor manufacturing capacity. They try to secure that in the U.S. with the billions dollars, $52 billion investment from recent legislative efforts. That's kind of the general goal of the U.S. supply chain security initiative. But I think still they are not looking for doing everything in one country. That's very much runs counter to the nature of the global innovation system as well as the global supply chain. Commercially, that's simply not feasible. And I mean, in the past, when countries have tried to adopt any sort of self-reliance mechanism, usually it just doesn't work. I mean, you cut yourself off from trade and so on. Are these focused mostly on national security concerns rather than sort of broader trade issues or even trade and tech? I think it's both. It's a recognition that some of the critical technologies and manufacturing capacities is important. And if you just look at the commercial fundamentals, supply chains are built for innovation and for market demand, not really for resilience against geopolitical shift. And we are experiencing one of the major geopolitical shifts in recent decades right now. So I think the political push will have certain impact in terms of reshaping the landscape of global supply chain. And I think in terms of country who has pursued this type of nationalistic or indigenous company promotion type of policy in the past, I would say some of them have some success in the past. I think South Korea have done some of it and Taiwan still does it. Even they have one of the best, most cutting edge semiconductor manufacturer in the world. They still allocate subsidies and tax benefits and other preferential policies to their national champions. So I think it's somewhat in the current political environment and against the current geopolitical landscape, I think it's kind of somewhat inevitable for the major power to do a little bit of this. At the same time, I think they realize, particularly the countries that have done this before, this may not be the most cost-effective way to promote your commercial capacity. But there's a sense of competition among even a Japanese company, Korean company, Taiwanese company, European companies that they need to shore up their capacity in this area. So you get this sense of competition. It's hard to slow them down at this point. So let me ask an impossible question. How would you see the market looking in five years if so many countries are trying to secure their own supply chains, particularly in semiconductors. And we can make it further out if you want to make sure that nobody ever comes back to check to see whether you were right or not. Um, (laughs) But but, where do you see it going? Yeah, that's a billion dollar question, maybe a trillion dollar question. (laughs) (laughs) I think maybe in the optimistic scenario, I think some countries will realize that their approach implies a high cost and it's not cost-effective and they're producing less return on investment is so low, they may scale it back a little bit. I think that's one optimistic scenario. I think there's a sense of competition cools down a little. I think a decision maker will have a longer term view on this issue and hopefully more objective approach um, to this topic. And in the less optimistic scenario, (laughs) countries can keep doing this. I don't know how many countries can keep rolling out 50 billion 
hundred billion dollar bill year after year. I think eventually they will hit some kind of financial bottom line. Maybe there's a middle ground scenario where some countries are smarter with their policy approach than others, and they put their money in the best places, and they actually gained some traction. I think if that's a possible case, then those countries may kind of regenerate more incentive for them to keep pursuing this type of approach. That's another scenario. I think the middle ground. I don't know which scenario we'll fall into. Yeah, so maybe we'll check in on the status of that in five years, uh, maybe <laughs> earlier than that. And, we'll definitely. We'll, we'll, we'll schedule it now. Then. We'll send you a Zoom invite. For five years <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure I will be over with quarantine at that point. So <laughs> Hopefully. <then. laughs> We've had these sort of national security semiconductor issues in the past, in the 1980s in particular. And the Chinese government is known for making very, very long-term plans. Do they also look backwards at how other countries have dealt with these kinds of issues? Or is there some thought that China is very different and, you know, the U.S. experience with, say, Semitech and the things it did in the 80s just aren't relevant anymore? And of course, obviously, I don't think people in the U.S. ever look back to see, to learn from what we did or not. But since China is so well known for looking forwards, do they also look backwards to learn? I think they have. Mm-hmm. I think they have. They look back both based on their own experience. I think if you look at their 12th five-year plan, their 13th five-year plan, they're always an element of promoting semiconductor technology of different mm-hmm. level of priorities. Like right now, it's pretty much the top, top technology issue that keeps presidency awake at night. But I think in the past, it's always in the top five top 10 list. And I'm sure China has also looked at how the Korean semiconductor companies came around and how Taiwan ended up to be one of the powerhouses for this sector. And probably the U.S. model as well. I think they look at the Asian countries' environment, their political system, as well as the U.S. market dynamic. They probably realize that their approach may not be the most efficient and it will take them a few rounds of trial and error to make progress. But I think the geopolitical tension is so high. I think they don't believe they have another choice. They don't think they can wait around, let the market's invisible hand play a dominant role and wait for this to happen naturally in the marketplace that may take 5, 10, 15 years. The political environment just doesn't allow that kind of option, at least in the mind of party leaders. Plus, I think China somewhat learned, I don't know, maybe this is not the right lesson from their past mostly not so successful experience of promoting semiconductor industry that actually a few Chinese companies like Huawei, Huawei's high silicon chip design branch actually had some pretty impressive creative innovation in terms of the design capacity for the semiconductor supply chain. That's very original and that's kind of a breakthrough compared to their other peers. And Technically, their innovation didn't come from the U.S. model, which is completely market-driven, which is talk about like small entrepreneurs trying to invent technology in their garage door. That's not Huawei's approach. Huawei has a lot of government support and put their employees into this very, very intense work schedule. And eventually, they somehow made breakthrough. I think the lessons from if Huawei can make a breakthrough in the design 
segment of the supply chain, maybe Huawei can and other industry players with more government support and preferential policy treatment, they can find other breakthrough, they can close other gaps on the supply chain that currently are the bottleneck in their technology ecosystem. Like the EDA machine, that's a very, very critical cutting-edge technology that China just doesn't have a substitute of. And right now, a lot of the Huawei engineer who made that major breakthrough in the design section are trying to work with their industry here and find out if they can reproduce their success. You talk about creativity, which obviously is a really important part of innovation. And we'll talk about how China has been the crackdown on some tech companies in a bit. But do you think that the stronger interventions and the various crackdowns that the Chinese government is imposing on various tech companies will affect this kind of creativity? I mean, creativity is by its nature from the ability to think and do whatever you want. Is there any sense that that might be harmed by yeah, the that, sort of new that, approach? That's a brilliant segue, Scott. <laughs> 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 I think there is definitely that type of concern because for the past 15, 20 years, the platform companies of China has been operating in this very laid-back regulatory environment. And they pretty much have the leeway, a privilege, I would say, to do whatever they want. Even sometimes they take on the tactic to pursue regulatory arbitrage because they represent innovation, which Mm -hmm. is highly valued by the political leaders. They have the special status to do what they want for quite a while. But now the crackdown comes. I think the macro environment is changing. And at one point, I exaggerated a little bit and say winter is coming, (laughs) especially for the major tech brands who have been. I think now the party leaders think (laughs) these companies have enjoyed so much benefit over the years and taken advantage of China's low labor costs and the relaxed regulatory environment, but they didn't produce as much technological advantage as the political leaders want them to. But the other side of the coin is that they are brilliant commercial innovators. The apps these companies produced and the algorithm they use, things like the algorithm that power TikTok, they are, I would say, in many ways surpassing their American competitors. And I think now, especially the big ones, the Alibaba, Tencent, and ByteDance type of companies are being put back, are being reined in by political leaders. Now they have to concern about how big we are and whether my algorithm represents the party's value, the, the social welfare-centric policy agenda she just laid out in the past month or so. And also many, many other aspects of my practice now seems to pose a threat to the party and even to the broader political agenda the party has been pursuing and will keep pursuing, particularly leading up to the sensitive political cycle at the end of next year. So I think everyone is very, very nervous. And I think their hands are tied. I don't think they have as much space to operate in terms of pursuing innovative ideas and finding 
new ways to commercialize their business model. I think that's definitely a damper on the commercial innovation side. I think maybe this is more minority view that this campaign can channel resource and human power from these major tech brands to focus on hard technology, whether that's quantum computing or that's robotics or autonomous vehicles. Ideally, I think (laughs) at some point, the party would direct the Chinese platform giants to do some of the moonshots type project that American tech companies has been pursuing, like Facebook and Google and Amazon have done some of these, you can say maybe in the near five, 10 years, it may not produce immediate capital return, but in the long run, it seems to be a very cool idea and that could generate the next major technological breakthrough, like a Waymo's autonomous car or Elon Musk's idea to send people to Mars. I think at some point, Chinese government want the Chinese companies to do things like that. That will help them to reorient the economy towards the growth driven by strategically important technology. And that will also help them to unlock their position. Sounds like there are a couple of things that are going on in the government. One is that the party leaders worry about threats to the party and the message that it wants people to receive. And the other is this impulse that seems to be common to leaders all around the world, regardless of their politics, which is that they feel like they know better than the companies do. So what direction innovation should go? So you know, one is party and the other is human. <laughs> so human leaders, are they sort of working together in, to push in particular directions? Yeah, I think some of this come back to the reaction to the rising power of major tech companies, right? Like I think for a while, governments around the world, in particular U.S. government, were trying to ring in, say, like major banks. They were the most dominant forces in the U.S. economy for a while. And then there's more regulation for these guys. And arguably, you can say that industry is even way more regulated than the tech sector today. And I think there's maybe a parallel here where tech companies are becoming more and more influential power even on the global stage and in each of these national economies. And the regulators feel like they're trying to catch up, but they're falling behind and they're losing power over to this rising technology giants. So there's, I think, the sense that a major wave of regulation is coming and whether that will come down at the end of the day, will come down to the level of regulation the banking sector is experiencing today. I think that's the billion-dollar question. Actually, you're saying winter is coming seems like exactly the right metaphor because we also don't know whether George R. R. Martin will ever finish the book. So we don't even know if there will, winter will actually come. So, but looking going down a little bit into more detail to the companies themselves, over the summer, we saw these big crackdowns against DD and the education companies. And some of like the stocks of those companies like DD have not really recovered and others, some of the education companies have. Is this just the stock market being disconnected from what's happening or does it reflect something going on in the government of their decisions, which types of companies to pursue and which not. I haven't been watching stock market that closely, but actually what you described seems to resonate with what I saw or what I have been 
gathering through virtual meetings with people on the ground of Beijing in the past week or so. I feel like I think the initial reaction to the online tutoring industry crackdown now seems to be fading. And when I talk to folks on the ground, I just ask like everyday people, like how old are your kids? Are they going to school? Are they going to after campus classes? And some of the、mm-hmm. elementary kids that fit into this. Age range. That's the focus of the regulatory pressure to strictly limit the scope of after-school educations. Some of the parents told me that their kids are still going to those tutoring company tutoring sessions online or、mm. offline, and they told me to look. Very closely at the word of the regulation issued by the government and the licensing requirement. I think it turns out to be for kids age two and twelve. It's not a sweeping ban. It's not a complete wipeout. They still allow tutoring companies to provide after class sessions during the week after school. They just couldn't do it on the weekends or during summer or winter break anymore. So I think the total size of their business is going to be much smaller. But that part of Revenue has not completely dried up yet, and then beyond kids of fifteen years old, for high schoolers, they can still provide training weekends, weekdays, summer, winter break. That's fine, and they can also focus on kids who want to prepare themselves for overseas study. They need to take GREs or TOEFLs or MOSET or GMAT. They can focus on this type of business as well. So I think the overall restrictions. Coming down the pike back in like May June timeframe, it's going to undermine the whole industry, but it's not going to kill the whole sector. Especially, I think the top tier players will be there to stay. They may be less profitable, less lucrative, but from the investor perspective, I think a lot of them look at the long term. If you look at the structure of Chinese economy, the demographic. Overlay with the regulatory trend, I think some of them still see opportunities in that sector, especially if you go into those stocks at the bottom. If you are able to catch their lowest point, then maybe you are in a favorable position than others. And then in terms of Didi, I recently heard the company is really in trouble. The cybersecurity review is going through its second extension, and the length of the review suggests that the Company, it's the CAC, the Cyberspace Administration of China, is not going to walk away from this probe and say, "We we look through everything and you are fine." It's more likely that the company has very serious national security problems. The problems are so big and so substantial. The rectification suggestion coming back from CAC. I guess suggestion actually is more like an order that DD has to follow. It's likely to involve major structural change at the company. This could involve、um, exit of top executives or delisting from U.S. stock market or even introduction of state-owned enterprises as stakeholders. I think this is what's going to come down the pike in the next few months after they close the investigation on DD. Well, I'm sure that there's a lot of the investigation nobody can't know about. But what extreme national security issues could a ride-sharing app have? 
<laughs> it depends on how you define cybersecurity, right? Like <laughs> right. national security is a very fluid term. I think there was a report back in 2016-17 where Didi collaborated with a research center and trying to map out the daily work schedule of different ministries because their <laughs> employees they go to work and come back home with the right sharing service. So, so they has amounted a substantial amount of data and then they can track the work schedules for different ministries. And oh yeah, <laughs> and they, they learned that, that from Uber. You know, a couple of years ago, Uber was trying to figure out how to identify regulators when they were calling for cars. Oh. <laughs> Well, maybe Uber should be looked at more closely as the security risk as well. I don't know. Because like, these days, a lot of the legislator on the Capitol Hill says, oh, China did so-and-so. Maybe we should consider that, particularly on the gaming restriction side, because China put very restrictive terms for out as a mandate for online gaming service provider, like minors can only play three hours of video game every week. And that's eight to nine on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And uh, U.S. lawmaker looked at that and said, don't you guys think we should do the same? <laughs> but anyway, because Uber has over 90% of the market share of ride-sharing services in China. And I think the scale of their data may raise question mark on, on cybersecurity. Wait, you, you mean... DD has 90%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, okay, right. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Uber has some share of DD, but right. no, no, no. Uber is not a business presence in China. DD is a Uber in China, I should right. say. Like Scott said earlier, you know, the danger of industrial policy is that governments will make wrong decisions. Like, how can they know how to? guide an economy from a command and control central place. There is a knowledge problem. Is there danger? I mean, obviously, the Chinese government is applying kind of big government paternalistic policies to help promote its own economy and to help like grow innovation and speed up the process of competition with other global players. But how does it correct on errors? Like if it's pulling everything internally, like with a self-reliance framework? Is it kind of a haphazard, experimental, we'll try this and try that approach? Or is there like a long-term belief that China can be isolated and self-sufficient? Like, why would China be pulling domestic companies off of foreign stock markets? Does it believe that it can do everything internally, capital markets, supply chain? Is this a belief that you know China could be self-sufficient in all aspects of the economy? That's a great question. I think in terms of the general approach for the major tech sector rectification campaign, I think President Xi's comment in August, actually during the Aspen Forum week, he made this launch of this new political campaign on common prosperity. That's very much a populist agenda driving a social welfare-centric policy objective. I think that kind of sums up the high-level political goal for what China has been doing since late last year. But in terms of specific tactic, I don't think they really know how far this will go and specifically where should they 
put pressure, how much pressure they should put on it. So I think there inevitably will be some overshooting on a certain aspect. And there will be things that maybe in a few years, they will look back and say, we should take a step back a little. But there are also areas, I think they're experimenting new regulatory approach in terms of, for example, there is a regulatory proposal to governing the algorithm used by a platform company. Don't use it to rate your geek workers' performance and benchmark everyone against the highest watermark, things like that. I think they're trying to take, generally speaking, incremental approach. Maybe the education sector crackdown is an outlier to that. Maybe the gaming ones went a little bit too far. But I think if you look at the labor rules, the algorithm ones, the antitrust, also the AI-related proposals, compare them to the EU approach, they are more incremental than the EU European regulators view on this issue. If you look at the Digital Market Act or Digital Service Act, they very, very clearly, for example, the the DMA, that's the digital antitrust gatekeeper concept, the European regulators propose. That's a very comprehensive framework that went beyond the traditional anti-monopoly legal framework, say, U.S. is still sticking to. They don't call it antitrust anymore. It's called gatekeeper. There's very, very clear parameter to define who are gatekeeper, how big are you, how many users you have, and what type of market power you have. I think you look at that, that's a fundamentally different approach to digital antitrust versus the Chinese version. Yes, Chinese government placed $2.8 billion fine on Alibaba and then over $500 million on Meituan, but those are only 4% of their annual revenue. And they are mostly dealing with some of the unique anti-competitive practice this platform has been employing. Like they force their supplier to pick themselves or their driver. You can't work with both. Or they use AI to support uh, somewhat predatory pricing regime and take advantage of people who have higher budget and give them higher price for the same product that an average user will purchase. So things like that, I think it's somewhat China unique phenomenon and their antitrust enforcement action are focused on that more so than say, like, let me figure out how to push Alibaba completely out of this market and get a state-owned enterprise to occupy their space. That's not their goal. In terms of, I think, the overseas stock market actions, I think that's more geopolitically related. I think given the sustained U.S.-China tech attention and the U.S. regulator are poised to delist Chinese companies in two to three years. Supposedly at technical level, the Chinese regulator are still negotiating with officials at SEC to figure out whether there's a middle ground to reach the transparency requirement in the U.S. stock market. But your issue group's view is that that's not likely to produce meaningful outcome in the immediate future. We don't really see a pathway to resolve that issue. So if this trend continues, Chinese company will delist from U.S. stock markets in 
say, two and a half years anyway. And at the same time, there's still a lot of Chinese platform company can't wait to take advantage of this window because they have so much pressure from their initial investors, their early stage investors to cash out. And that's why they rush to list in the U.S. dollar market in the first half of this year and last half of last year, even the window is closing. They're trying to capture that opportunity. And I think on this point, it seems like the Chinese and U.S. government's position are aligned. The SEC chairman, Gary Gessner, made a video, I think maybe two weeks ago, saying these companies are shell companies and investors who are buying stocks of Chinese platform company be aware of the significant risk. And at the same time, Chinese government pretty much put a very, very high bar for future Chinese firm to list it in U.S. stock markets, particularly for a platform company that manage a lot of data. It's kind of a very, very narrow chance at this point. I think at this point, the two governments are kind of aligned, ironically. I mean, at a higher level, are Chinese officials surprised at the approach the Biden administration has taken? Do they expect lots of changes from the Trump administration or are relations kind of the way everyone expected they would go under Biden? I think they were initially a little bit surprised that Biden seems to be more of a hardliner than the position he took on China when he was vice president and Mm -hmm. throughout his career path. But I think just in the past couple of weeks, there's some initial sign of um, possible transition towards a lowered tension in the bilateral relationship. I think this is something that's an initial sign of um, potential de-escalating a little bit of the bilateral tension. And I think the Beijing Authority definitely see this is a promising signal. And you can see the state media and the Chinese government officials start to picking out the positive words from every major cabinet members of U.S. and saying U.S. is sending these soft signals. If you look at the state secretary's statement, there's like eight sentences and the seven of them are pretty hard line, but they pick up the last line that shows a little bit of softening tone and say, oh, this is a good sign. So I think that that's kind of their general assessment. And they also saw one of the first major public appearance USTR Kazan Tai made in providing comments on U.S. trade policy position regarding China. I think they see people in the Biden administration are mostly professionals and they are rational actors. And I think this will provide somewhat more, there will be more predictability from Beijing's side versus during the Trump era, they just didn't know what they're dealing with. And it's so chaotic and there's so much uncertainty. I think right now, I think the major issues between US and China, especially on trade and technology, is still very, very difficult to resolve. Even, I think, yeah, for major issues like cross border data flows or cloud sector market access, they were brought up during the phase one trading negotiation because China was under so much pressure during the tariff war. They at some point were considering making concession. But for those major issues, I think that type of crazy high pressure is somewhat gone. It's harder for make China to concede on those issues anymore. But for 
I think smaller things like releasing the two Michaels or maybe potentially somewhat lift the COVID travel restriction in the first half of next year or providing some tariff reliefs that's also beneficial to Chinese firms. I think smaller things like that may start to happen. Well, we are out of time and I guess leaving it on a somewhat positive note is probably a good thing to do. <laughs> and we'll come back, of course, to see whether the hopefulness was justified. Xiaobang, we really, really appreciate your time and your insights. Thank oh, you so much absolutely. for joining us. It's always a delight to connect with you and Sarah and talk about these exciting topics. Yep, and hopefully we will do so again in the future.